gearing up to go fishing the other day, and it got me thinking about freedom, actually. Isn't it awesome how when Jesus came, suddenly we were free from the old cultural and religious rules people had to follow back then? Things like what you ate, or even how and when you went to church. Man, I tell you, if I couldn't eat my ham and crawdad soup, I don't know what I'd do. I wouldn't last long under those rules. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have to follow things like God's Big Ten. <laughs> it's just, it means that in Jesus, there's freedom. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of like being off the hook, if you see what I'm getting at. And that might sound like a big old fish story to you. But don't take my word for it. thankful for those in this room who have served in our United States military and those that we know have lost their lives in battle as well and uh, grateful for this holiday. Pray you have a wonderful Memorial Day to rest and reflect upon that. We, uh, we are also really thankful for our, our mission team that's in Colombia right now and it's 19 people that are in Colombia who really are representatives of us down in the Magangue region. And I say that but because we've sponsored as a church about 400 kids in this region. And so our mission team that is going to those kids will be seeing a lot of the kids that you've been sponsoring and, and writing to over this past year and a half. And this very morning, perhaps right now, Pastor Brian Klein is uh, preaching in a church there in Magange through a translator. So uh, we pray for Brian as he brings the good word. And they've all arrived safely. They're healthy. And uh, we trust that God's going to use them in some great ways for that new church uh, that's being built. And um, uh, just this next step in our development of this partnership with Magange. And I also trust and I pray for these 19 as they return that they will be changed. It's always a two-way thing. You go on a mission trip and you give something important to someone else, but, but also you are changed by them and you see that God is at work in other places as well and you learn from different ways that different Christians do it and uh, they will have an opportunity to have their minds open in a profound way and come back and we pray that they're on fire for the Lord and give us much as they return as well. So but please keep that team in prayers. They just um, arrived in Columbia, I think uh, late, Friday night, early Saturday morning, and then they'll be there for the next week. We are in this series titled Off the Hook, a mark-it-up series in Galatians is what we're calling it, and the hope whenever we do one of these mark-it-up series is that you would bring your Bible, and maybe you take your notes on your iPad or your phone or whatever, that's fine too, but uh, I personally enjoy having uh, the paper Bible so I can kind of mark up along the way and see things that I've learned at a later date. And so what I'll be doing throughout this series is kind of showing how I mark up my scriptures along the way and perhaps give you a little bit of a model well with that as well. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one out of the information table or the exits as a free gift to you. We'd like you to have one if you would like one. And uh, today we'll be in Galatians 1, verses 10 to 21. Before I jump into our passage at hand, it's probably helpful just to give... A, a brief overview of where this book goes and a little bit of review of where we've been last Sunday. 
As you're reading through Galatians each week in anticipation of the message, you can kind of look for this basic outline for the entire book. It goes like this. Galatians is the gospel of the crucified Christ, which creates one new multi-ethnic community that is freed from legalism and is transformed by the Spirit of God. That's basically it. In chapters 1, you see the basic message of the crucified gospel of Christ and the difference that it would make in our lives. Chapters 3 and 4 creates one new multi-ethnic community and breaks down those divisions between Jews and Gentiles that had developed over time and that Paul was dealing with well when he wrote this that frees us from legalism. We'll talk more about that. And gives us this transformation in the Holy Spirit of God. Chapter 5, of course, gives this beautiful portrait of living in the flesh versus living in the Spirit of God. That's what you can look for as you read through the book as a whole. A little review of where we went last week. Last week we started off by talking about this reality that in the first ten verses of this letter, uh, Paul's pretty ticked off, wasn't he? Remember that? He gets riled up and he even accuses the Galatians of distorting the gospel message, making it less than the gospel itself. And to get there, he reminds the Galatians of the gospel message again and again in chapters 1 and 2. Let's just remind ourselves, uh, the basic gospel message of mere Christianity is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which freely pardons us, freely pardons sinners like me, freely forgives sinners like me. It's not you, it's me. Okay, we, we, we look in the mirror. Freely forgives us and then welcomes us into God's family, welcomes into us into his love and into his embrace. Now, fortunately, what's happened in the Galatian church is a couple different things. Some people are just kind of playing church. You ever met someone like that? They go to church from time to time, but they really don't care about it much. They kind of trust Jesus for their forgiveness, but they don't really trust him as Lord. They don't see him as master. They're just kind of playing church. You've met some of those people. They had some of those people there too. The bigger issue, though, even than that, in the Galatian churches, they were practicing this kind of Jesus and religion. Jesus plus kind of religion. The, yeah, I've embraced the gospel of Christ, and that's great. That's a good starting point. But in addition, you have to do all these other things as well to really show that you are really a Christian. And this is what we would call legalism. A simple definition of legalism goes like this. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, belief in Jesus Christ, plus some other addition that you must do to keep up with the Christian Joneses. That you must do to make yourself feel like you're keeping up with God. And it becomes a whole bunch of extra religious rules, which turns into this legalistic do's and don'ts. We'll talk more about that a bit today, but that's where legalism starts. Jewish Christians back then were saying things like, yeah, you've, you've trusted in Jesus as God, you, you've trusted in Jesus as Messiah, but have you also... Jesus and, okay? Have you also been maintaining all of the Jewish dietary restrictions? There's hundreds of them. Of the laws of kosher, have you heard of that? Laws of kosher, that's what the Jews kept and still keep to this day. And these 
early Galatian teachers were saying to the people in their church that you can't mix milk and meat together. You heard Josh Pierce in that little video talk about, uh, man, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have my ham and crawdad soup. Well, you couldn't have either of those because you couldn't have shellfish or pork. And then in addition to that, they were saying, okay, there's these dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of restrictions on how you keep Sabbath. These are the ways that you must maintain your Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It must be these ways, and we will be watching. That kind of thing. Now, fortunately, we've come to a more enlightened age where there's no more legalism today. Come on, laugh with me, y'all. Okay, there is a lot, unfortunately. Still in the Christian church, there's, there's plenty of this. And it looks different places, looks, looks uh, different ways in different places. I personally don't think we struggle with it a lot here at Carney Free, praise God. But it's always a temptation, and so we just need to state it. There's some churches, though, that kind of say, yeah, you, you've trusted in Christ, but do you also like speaking tongues? Or do you also have these ecstatic religious experiences? Do you also read this version of the Bible, this the right version of the Bible? Do you also, do you also, do you also? Until you start to see the rules instead of seeing the gospel. And that's a real danger that can happen in many places. This legalism, it's like a Jesus plus a whole lot of religious rules, which is all of the religion without any of the power. Can we collectively say, ick, yuck, I want the power, not the religious rules. I hope you agree. Why do people do this? Why are we tempted by this? I've gone there. I've been tempted by this. Many, many churches are. It strikes me that many people are tempted by legalism and many churches kind of veer toward legalism rather than the pure gospel because it gives us a semblance of control. And we all like to be in control, don't we? We all like to be in control and legalism makes us feel like we are checking the right religious boxes, doing the right things and abstaining from the wrong things. And it gives us this sense of being in control which helps us feel like we are getting good with God. The trouble with that thinking is we don't need to get good with God because he's already got good with us, hasn't he? He's already gotten good with us, and so we receive that, and the more we live into that, and the more we live through the Holy Spirit, the the more we start to live like Jesus did, but it, it doesn't happen as we climb our way up the ladder. It happens as Jesus climbed his way down the ladder. He got good with us. We also, I think, can struggle with legalism, but because it feels good to control other people. And so many families will struggle with this, or churches, or life groups, friendships will will struggle with this, because it feels like if I can tell other people to do these extra things, then I'll feel like I am responsible for, I'm in control of their spiritual growth, and that feels kind of good. But you know, the Holy Spirit cannot be contained, do you know that? The Holy Spirit cannot be controlled. And the only biblical form of control, hear me now, is self-control. The only biblical form of control is self-control. We surrender other people to the providence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us, who would work his way through us and change us and conform us to the likeness of Christ. And so I, for one, 
I don't ever want to become the kind of pastor that's trying to control you. I promise you, I don't want anything to do with that. Because what you need is not a bunch of rules and regulations fluff from me. What you need is more of the Holy Spirit. The same thing that I need. More of a listening to God that says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. More of an opening to the scriptures on a daily basis. Say, God, would you please teach me today? Would you inform me and equip me and transform me? The last thing I want to do is control anyone. I want to equip and empower people to lead for the glory of God. You see the difference there? We trust people into the Holy Spirit and, and, and trust Him to guide people individually and guide us from the Scriptures. This is a big piece of who we are. We don't want people to be church-dependent or controlled by church. We want people to be equipped to lead in their most important relationships and especially in their own spiritual life. That you might get a little helping from me on Sunday. You might get a serving of good food hopefully on Sunday, but you need lots of other good servings of good food throughout the week, right? And so we want to equip you for that and um, not control. That's the last thing we want to do. Okay, that's an important message, but that's last week's message, so I better move on. <laughs> Somebody should preach that sometime. All right, let's move on to verse 10 for this week. Paul goes on to say this. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is an idea that Paul talks about a lot, and earlier Christians in America were fond of saying this, the Puritans in America were fond of saying this, you live before an audience of of one. You don't live before all of these people, and I live before an audience of one too. It's a powerful idea that generations ago, Christians regularly taught and they believed and they internalized that themselves. I live before an audience of God alone, and so am I trying to win the approval of men and women, or am I trying to win the approval of God Most High? It's something that Paul talks about a lot in his different letters. Over in Romans 2, he says, we are freed from having to judge other people at all because we trust other people into the good hands of God. And we trust that he will do right in people's lives. And so I don't need to size myself up and put other people down. I don't need to enter into the comparison trap, he says in Romans chapter 2. Over in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I cannot even judge myself, only God can judge me. Other people can't judge me, but that doesn't make me innocent. I can't judge myself. I'm not objective enough. Only God is objective to judge me. And as he says here, if I were trying to please people, if I were trying to please people, then I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, this isn't this prideful statement of uh, only God can judge me. It's not that. It's a humble statement of God is good and he sees all. He's kind and he's compassionate and he's loving and he sees me from first to last and he will judge accurately. And I trust myself to him because these are two incompatible goals. It'll be either I trust myself to him or I'm trusting myself to other people. 
If I were underlining and outlining my Bible, I would probably go to this. If I were still trying to please people, then I would not be a servant of Christ. The two incompatible goals that we have to choose Am I going to seek to please other people first and foremost, or am I going to choose to, to please first and foremost God? And live before him as my master, make it my goal to please him, make it my goal to live for his approval, make it my goal to simply enjoy him with all that he has given to me. Here's the big idea, though, that you've got to get specifically from uh, verse 10 and from those many other passages, though, that we see from the Apostle Paul. It's this, approved by God... We are freed from the need of human approval. Let me say it again. Approved by God, you actually can be freed from the need for human approval. I encourage you to write that down and consider that. This is a really, really big deal to the Apostle Paul that he speaks about it this often because he was like a professional judger before he became a Christian. He went around constantly judging and evaluating people, and now he's being evaluated by people in the church, and he is freed from the need for human approval, freed from the need to judge other people. When he was a Pharisee, that's kind of what Pharisees did. They sized other people up and put them down. They were racist against Gentiles. They acted like religious policemen over other people's Sabbath-keeping and tattoos and dietary habits because they believed that all that stuff would somehow earn God's favor. And Paul was an expert at that. But again, he's released from all of that as he encounters Jesus Christ and he realized those things, those traditions of man do not earn God's favor. I am approved by God. I've already been given God's favor. I'm not seeking to earn God's favor anymore. I've already been given it. I'm not seeking to win God's approval anymore. Jesus already won it. You see the difference? I'm not living for you. I'm living from him. Eyes up, not eyes out. You see the difference? That's what Paul's getting at. So since he's dropped all those traditions of the civil and ceremonial law of the Old Testament, and we'll get in that later on in this series, but he's dropped all those civil and ceremonial laws, not the moral laws, but the civil and ceremonial laws, he's dropped those. This group of teachers, well, within Galatia, has now risen up, and here's the issue that's at hand that led to the Apostle Paul's writing. You gotta stick with me. He went to Galatia the first time in probably 47 AD. He starts these collection of churches. They start off well. After they start off well, these uh, Jewish converts come into uh, the church. They're Jews that become Christians. They come into the church, and as they come into the church in Galatia, they're saying, it's not enough for you just to believe in the gospel. You also have to do all these other things. And so Paul writes this letter to them, telling them they are off, and they are criticizing back on him. And part of what Paul is going to get at throughout the book of Galatians, as he's speaking back to these folks that have risen up well within the church, is that God has already approved you so you can let go of these various doctrines related to the circumcision of men and related to kosher laws and Sabbath restrictions. And most importantly, he's going to talk in chapters 3 and 4 about getting rid of all this idea about first-class people and second-class people. 
He says, do away from that. Do away, do away with that. Because the Pharisees who have come to faith in Christ and come into the church, they're still holding on to these old ideas that Jews are first-class people in the kingdom of God and the other nations, the other ethnicities, the Gentiles are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Paul does away with all of that. He turns from all of that and he critiques it to the Galatian leaders in the church. And as a result of that, I know that's some heavy treading, but as a result of that, they are now saying to him, Paul, because you've turned from all of this, you're not a real minister. You're not a real apostle. And that's what gave rise to him writing Galatians. They're saying, because you're not following all these Old Testament laws and regulations, you're not a real minister, you're not a real apostle. Now you tell me, does Paul care? That man doesn't give two red pennies what they think. He is freed from the need for human approval because he knows that he is approved by God. Once again, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'm telling you, that's a, that's a life verse for some of us. That is a life verse for some of us. If I was still looking for your approval, then I wouldn't be a servant of Christ, but I want to be a servant of Christ. He's my master, and so I look for his approval and his alone because these two are incompatible. I'm either going to really go after Christ or I'm really, really going to go after what other people would think of me. It's going to be one or the other. One of my favorite musical artists and songwriters is a man named Lecrae. And Lecrae is this brilliant rapper who won a number of Grammys. And he's been through a ton of rejection in his life. After winning several Grammys, he was rejected by the musical community because he wasn't willing to shut up about his faith in Christ. And so they would kind of usher him off and marginalize him because he wasn't willing to stop talking about Christ in his music. But then he kind of got fed up with some of the things though, that he experienced as a black man in America, and he had the gall to talk about those things. As a black man in America, these are some of the things that I've had to deal with. And so some of the churches that he would perform in started to say, we don't want anything to do with you anymore either. And he got rejected from them. And he had to come to a sense of who he is as a man, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, even if other people well, would reject him. And he's famously said in one of his songs, and he says on a regular basis well, when he speaks, look at this. Man. If you and I live for people's approval, we will die at their rejection. He can say that because he is approved by God and therefore freed from the need for human approval. He understands that God has got him and he's no longer a slave to fear of rejection from people. He's freed from all of that. One of my prayers oftentimes as a pastor who has struggled with fear over the years. I've struggled with the fear of man. I've struggled with the fear of rejection. And so one of my prayers over the years has been, God, would you make my skin a little bit tougher even as you make my heart softer? That I would continue to look at people the way you do, Jesus. And yet at the same time, you would make my skin a little bit tougher to the critiques that are inevitably going to come our way. 
Because the simple truth is, we are forgiven. And not just forgiven, we are loved. And not just loved, we are brought into the very family of God, adopted by him, such that what can people do to us? This is the center for our confidence. So Paul's defending his ministry, and as he's defending it, he he says to the Galatians, okay, you don't think I'm a legitimate minister. Let, let me tell you just a little bit about myself. And he goes on here at verse 11. The rest of this message won't be as long as the first part. Verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You want to learn more about that? Go over to Acts chapter 9. You see how he received a revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. If you want to see more about that, you can look at Acts chapter 7 and 8, the way he zealously persecuted the church. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is Paul's calling to the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later on I returned to Damascus in Syria, where he was from. And so, here's this man who was an intense bigot, uh, you would even say he was a fanatic or perhaps even a terrorist who was killing Christians for their faith. He was wholehearted into Pharisaical Judaism and God gets a hold of him and he becomes wholehearted for God. He gives his life to God as God calls him to this great service of being a missionary to the Gentiles and then he goes off for three years it says to Saudi Arabia and to Damascus where he's listening to and learning from Jesus and the oral tradition of Jesus that's already circulating at this point, the various teachings and parables and healings of Jesus. He's learning about those, I assume, and he's studying the Old Testament scriptures for three years before he starts any of his ministry. Then it goes on to say, after three years, verse 18, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that is Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. So the second stage of Paul's training here is, first, three years with Jesus, and second, this kind of Christian boot camp, if you will, with James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, the first apostle of Jesus. Then you go on to verse 21. It says, Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. Okay, that's a, it's a long passage, but I want you to notice this. God doesn't do anything good in us without a long time of equipping in us. Paul's being equipped here for 14 years before he enters into the center of the calling that God has for him. Perhaps a couple years earlier than this, he's made his first visit to Galatia. But the center of God's calling to him 
is that he would be this church planter throughout the Mediterranean world, and he would eventually write half of the New Testament. And he doesn't begin that in earnest for 14 years. Eventually, God would use this man to transform the entirety of the Mediterranean world, reaching out to Gentiles, that is non-Jews, the ethnic nations like us, that's us in this entire region from North Africa through the Mediterranean, through South Europe, and into the islands therein, starting into his hometown of Tarsus, Syria, and going out from there. But it was 14 years of equipping and training before he entered into the center of what God was calling him to. This is critical for us to understand, particularly in our instant gratification world that we live in, God wants to do something great in your life, but oftentimes there's going to be a time of equipping before he does something great in your life. God doesn't just start with us and say, I give you this calling, now go on your own, good luck. No, he makes you a mother, and you grow in that over time. He makes you a husband, and you slowly grow in that over many, many years. He gives you some kind of great ministry and you slowly grow in that over many years. I'm looking at a man in our church right now. Tim Cargus and his wife Alyssa are about to move to Omaha because God has been growing him since 2011 as a worship leader here and just a couple weeks ago he got a new job as worship pastor to church in Omaha. Thanks be to God. But he's been equipped and slowly growing in that through Matt Demaret and Kent Sunberg and others over the course of eight years. It doesn't happen instantaneously. And man, we're going to miss Tim here, aren't we? What an amazing worship leader he is. But we set him off. God slowly grows us and equips us and changes us. And then over time, he multiplies and he empowers and he grows our ministries. That's what he's doing well with Apostle Paul. Someone as brilliant as Paul needed 14 years of ministry training before he was able to live into the center of God's calling over his life. Christians many times uh, misunderstand this. Salvation that God gives to us at the moment that we believe in the gospel is instantaneous. God can change you from the inside out starting today. You might not yet be a Christian. You could become a Christian today simply by surrendering your heart, soul, mind, and strength to God, saying, I trust in you. I trust in the gospel. You can become saved. You can become justified today. But the process of sanctification and the process of equipping for ministry, equipping to be a parent or a husband or a wife, takes your whole life. God sanctifies us slowly over time to become people of patience become people of gentleness, to become people of self-control. That's a slow process, and so it's also the case with equipping. God slowly equips us through our present and our past experiences to multiply our future impact. God will use your present and your past experiences to equip you for a greater future ministry impact. And that is precisely what God does with the Apostle Paul in our passage this morning. You notice that Paul goes into this biography section here where he talks about his history and the things that he did wrong. And he shares with the church, here's some of my past. Look at verse 22 to 24. He says, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
They only heard the report. This is the news about Paul. This is the scuttlebutt. This is the, the gossip about Paul, if you will. This is what they heard. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith. Huh? Like, wow, how did this happen? He used to be trying to destroy us. He used to be trying to destroy the faith, and now he's preaching the faith. And what happens? They praise God because of me. They saw this change in his life, that he used to be a persecutor of the church, now he's been converted and he's a lover of the church. He's a lover of those that he used to hate. He used to look down at Gentiles and now God is using him to reach out to Gentiles. He used his past experiences to multiply his future impact. I know you're not going to remember all these different names and cities and places that I talked about here this morning, but you've got to remember this. Your past failures do not define your future ministry impact. you got to remember this. Your past failures, whatever they might be, do not by necessity define your future ministry impact. If they would have, Paul would have been done. Like, imagine the headline for Paul. Church hater becomes church planter. Gentile hater becomes Gentile lover. Town drunk becomes teacher of the year. Could God do that? Oh, you better believe God could do that. Gossip girl becomes peacemaker. Could God do that? Lifelong stutterer becomes weekly church preacher. I don't know why. Because he's good. Because he's kind. Because he's loving. Because he doesn't look at your past and say, that defines you. No, he wants to use your past to multiply it for future ministry impact. You know, it strikes me that the most natural thing that Paul would have done in this situation is to say, man, I, I was a part of someone's murder. Stephen, again, Acts 7 and 8. He was overseeing the first church martyr, the first murder of a Christian, other than Jesus. Okay, Jesus wasn't Christian, but Jew. He was overseeing that, and then many others as well. He was a terrorist, and he writes here, for time immemorial, that was me, but what I was is not what I am. And what you were is not what you are. And the difference is this. Are you willing to take your past experiences, as beautiful or as ugly as they may be, and do like the Apostle Paul does here, spread, that, spread them out on a table for other people to see? Are you willing to do that? If you're willing to take your past experiences, as ugly as they may be, and spread that out, them out on a table for other people to see, God will take those past failures, God will take those past experiences, God will take those past sins, and he will further multiply them for a far greater future ministry impact than you could ever imagine. This is part of the reason that our care ministries here are so successful. We have people who have gone through the pain of divorce, and they're open about it. 
and then they teach others who are going through it. People who have gone through the pain of losing someone unexpectedly in a deep, deep loss, a deep grief, and they're open about it, and they bring others in. People who have gone through addiction or gone through the experience of having a blended family and bringing that together, and they're open about it. They choose not to hide it. God will use your past in a profound way to bless other people's future so that he would be praised if you will let him. Do you believe this, church? And yet you're not defined by past shame. God makes you unashamed. You're not defined by past failures. You're defined by the beauty of Christ for you. And, and so what is it for you? It might be some intense anxiety or depression in your past. Could God use that to bless someone else and then he gets praised? It could be an area of anger that you're just stewing and you still continue to stew it, but you're working your way through it and you made some progress over the years. Could it be that God wants to use that in someone else's life, that he would be praised and someone else would get helped? Could it be a divorce? Could it be the loss of a loved one? Could it be some area of family shame? That with some area of family shame, you said, I've, I've just wanted to throw this key away. I put it in a lockbox and I... I threw it away, and I don't want anyone to ever see it again. Number one, you won't ever be healed by it. You won't ever be healed from it unless you bring it out into the open. And number two, God can't use that for someone else and for his glory unless we bring it out into the open. But if we bring it out, God will use a long period of equipping to change us, to heal us, to inform, to bless, to serve other people such that he gets the praise and there's no one who gives mercy and grace away more powerfully to someone else than that man or woman who has received the grace and mercy of God themselves. And that, my friends, when we do that, that's living off the hook. That's living in freedom. That's standing on the grace of God that others can be affected that we can be ministers of God and he would get all the credit. Are you with me? Let's go after it, huh? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as I consider Paul's past and a long period of equipping that he went through and the way you ministered to him and healed him from some of his past sins and forgave him and just redefined the way he would see himself. I'm just so grateful, Lord, that you continue to do that in us today. And I look at my past, God, and some of the just ridiculous, stupid, sinful things that I've done. And I thank you, God, that I am not ultimately defined by those anymore. I'm ultimately defined by the blood of Jesus Christ and brought into the family of God where I am called a child of God, where I'm brought into your family and I'm filled with the Spirit by you. And so, Father, my old stuff, my family shame, my old sins, God, if you want to use them for your glory, if you want to use them so that other people can have someone else to march through their challenges, God, I, I invite you to do that. If you want to use me in that way, God, go ahead. 
Maybe I have friends in this room that would say the same thing. That they have some past shame from their families. I think we all do. Or they have some sin that they have just decided is so terrible that they can't ever bring it out into the open. And I think we've all been there from time to time. And so I ask for my brothers and sisters in this room who might be struggling with that even now, that you would free them from shame through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, you free us from shame. We are unashamed, the Bible says, because the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are unashamed. And so if there are any brothers and sisters in this room who have embraced Christ but are still riddled by shame and guilt, God, free them right now. May they live in you. May they look to the cross and know that they're yours, that they're part of your family, and they're not defined any longer by the things they've done wrong, but they're defined by what Jesus has done right. And maybe there are friends in this room who have never embraced this freedom themselves. You don't even know what I'm talking about because you've never embraced Christ. Well, there's no better day than today to do that. To say, Jesus, I trust in you to be my Savior. I trust in you to be my Lord. I ask that you would forgive me for the things that I've done wrong. I haven't lived up to my own standards, let alone the much higher standards of God. Would you please forgive me? I promise you today, if you do that, and you mean it, you say, I trust myself to you. I ask you to be on the throne of my life. God says yes to you. God's love is so unconditional and uncontainable that he would say yes to you even right now. And Father, I'm totally convinced that it's these kind of people who are off the hook, living in freedom, who can build your kingdom here. And so we're going to take a right turn right now from the sobriety of this moment, and we're going to move into worship and praise to you because you choose to build your kingdom through ordinary, broken people like us. So, Father, as we sing it, we say, would you keep healing us? And would you bring it on? Build it even here and now, we ask in Jesus' name. God's people say.